Hello and welcome to The Frontline, a podcast from ILGA Europe in Brussels. We represent and work on behalf of over 700 LGBTI activist organizations across Europe and Central Asia. And our podcast aims to bring you to the front lines of queer activism in the regions. My name is Belinda Deer, and in this episode, we're looking at the new wave of accession to the EU and what it will mean for LGBTI people. With the recent news that Ukraine and Moldova are now candidates to the EU, the topic of EU accession is on the radar again, while Western Balkan countries such as Serbia, North Macedonia and Montenegro have been going through the process for some years now, and Turkey not exceeded since its application in 1987. With the current state of LGBTI rights in Central Europe, highlighted most recently by the Serbian government's anti-democratic instrumentalizing of LGBTI people in an effort to try to stop Europride in Belgrade, how does this kind of backsliding play into the accession process? And what about countries like Ukraine, where LGBTI rights have barely been on the governmental agenda? What are the opportunities to be gained by candidacy for joining the EU? To discuss these questions, and I'm sure more, I'm joined by former member of European Parliament, Mariah Cornelison, who has worked extensively on the accession process, Lenny Emson from Kiev Pride in Ukraine, Anastasia Danilova from Gender.M in Moldova, and Daniel Kalicic, who worked for years as the executive director of Queer Montenegro, but has now become the co-director of ERA, the LGBTI Equal Rights Association for the Western Balkans and Turkey. We're also joined by my colleague Katrin Hugendubel to talk about ILGA Europe's deep and long-term experience of working on accession countries, which has been happening for 25 years now. But first, I'd like to come to you, Lenny. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been devastating and destructive, and Ukraine moving closer to EU accession is extremely important in this context. At the same time, LGBTI rights were and still are quite precarious in Ukraine. How do you feel about the prospects of Ukraine entering the accession process? Of course, for LGBTQI community in Ukraine, joining the European Union uh, brings a big hope, right? We, first of all, looking at civil partnerships and then in a longer perspective, uh, equal marriage rights for LGBTQI uh, couples, right? And of course, we're looking at uh, anti-hate crime legislation that must be introduced this fall uh, for a second reading in the Ukrainian parliament. So we really hope that uh, this perspective will give our community a chance to gain the rights that we were fighting for for years. So I would say like for a long, uh, over five years, we were trying to uh, pass the civil partnerships bill uh, for same-sex couples uh, in the parliament. Unfortunately, our efforts were not successful. But right now, we're facing a good perspective, and this gives us a great hope because right now, uh, this law would be the most, I would say, the most important for the community inside the country uh, because uh, every day we're facing death, we're facing uh, devastating consequences of the war going on inside the country. So people who are fighting on a front line for example, they need a right to be married to their partners. They need a right to uh, be legally responsible for their partners. For example, if a soldier dies on a battlefield, there must be a possibility for their partner to collect their body. And 
if the soldier is uh, wounded and is in a hospital, there must be a possibility for their partner to make a medical decision for them. So without this law, without a possibility to be married or uh, partnered officially with your partner, this is impossible. So today, this is a great need for the whole community. And we really hope that uh, in this fall, on this parliament session, this uh, law will be adopted. And same-sex couples in Ukraine will have a right to uh, marry or to have a civil partnership. And of course, uh, the European Union perspective would bring us closer to this uh, decision of the parliament. Great. Thanks a lot for sharing that. And it's really, yeah, indeed very important uh, to have civil partnership in the in the current context. And uh, fingers crossed for, for the autumn, it would be really great news and also really uh, jumping very fast uh, in terms of LGBTI rights in, in the country. I was wondering, apart from civil partnership, if you have like a couple of other priorities, that, because of course, if you get civil partnership already, then the accession process hasn't even really begun. So with the, with the process, are there a couple of other uh, areas that you would like to see move quickly? Like which are your priorities? Uh, Anti-hate crimes legislation, specifically hate crimes directed on LGBTQI people. So uh, these are hate crimes committed based on sexual orientation or gender identity. So we really much hope that, uh, uh, again, Ukrainian parliament will be looking at this legislation and will be improving our anti-hate crime legislation in Ukraine to introduce the uh, sexual orientation and gender identity as uh, like markers of a hate crime. So this would help us a lot to investigate hate crimes. Unfortunately, uh, since February 24th, the number of hate crimes towards LGBTQI people in Ukraine increased. Unfortunately, homophobic and transphobic groups that existed in Ukraine long before the Russian invasion, right now they feel pretty much okay and still there. And uh, they still attack our people, attack the most visible members of the community. And for this period of time, over 200 days since the invasion started, we already uh, calculated over 100 cases, just cases that has been reported to uh, LGBTQI organizations. So cases of hate crimes committed towards LGBTQI community. And of course, there are much uh, more cases that has not been reported because people, of course, afraid of uh, uh, telling anyone about what happened to them because sometimes uh, these hate crimes being committed by uh, very powerful uh, groups and uh, uh, even those who have uh, relationships with the military. So LGBTQI people are just afraid to be open about what happened to them because they're afraid of consequences, what can actually uh, happen then, right? And that's why anti-hate crime legislation would be a great tool for the community in our work with the police. Uh, which is uh, investigating hate crimes towards LGBTQI people. And we hope that this will happen again uh, this fall. And uh, we very much hope that uh, then for the LGBTQI community, the situation with uh, hate crimes will be improved and the number of these crimes will decrease. And it's a, it's a really important point, especially... As, as you say, the hate crimes are increasing during the war, but also I expect that uh, when the war is over, this will also need to be worked on quite a lot and it will be great having the, the EU's support in that. 
I'm just going to now turn to Anastasia, because the EU also accepted Moldova as an EU accession candidate at the same time as Ukraine. How do you view the accession process as an opportunity to advance LGBTI rights in Moldova? Definitely, it's a great opportunity for LGBT people in the country as well. And we see that we already have some positive changes uh, in Moldovan legislation with regards to LGBT rights. Uh, Moldova ratified Istanbul Convention, and it was a very important step for us. But also in Moldova, law on hate speeches and hate crimes, which includes sexual orientation and gender identity as grounds of protection, has been adopted. It's a big step for LGBT rights in the country. And we really believe that one of the reasons why this legislation has been adopted in the country is, of course, EU integration. And in this case, of course, for us, EU became a garant of uh, equality of rights for LGBT people. And it's just first steps. And of course, for us, it's also really important to see how those legislations will be implemented. And implementation is always a huge issue, as all of you know. But at the same time, it's already extremely important for us because uh, as, as, it, as it is in Ukraine, in Moldova as well, hate crimes against LGBT people for very long time were not recognized as hate crimes. They were registered in national statistics as just hooliganism or robbery or something like that. And till today, we do not have any hate crime against LGBT people, which was recorded in a statistic of police as hate crime against LGBT person, which is crazy because, of course, we have those cases. And, of course, our organization doc documented these cases. But at the same time, just few cases came to us on the same reasons. People are just really afraid to come, to document, to go to police, and to say openly about the reasons why they were beaten or just uh, being uh, a victims of, uh, of physical crime or physical aggression. Also, war is going on very close to us. And in Moldova, we have Transnistrian region. As you probably know, in this region, we already have some troops of Russian army. And of course, in this case, EU integration is also a sign of safety for us because we do understand that it's a huge risk that the war will be here in, in Moldova as well. And in this case, of course, safety, physical protection of people is extremely important as well because situation in Moldova is very unstable. On the one hand, we have very progressive pro-European government, which actually adopted all those very important legislations. But at the same time, political situation in the country is very unstable. We have pro-Russian parties, which tried to use economical crisis, for example, against current government, and they tried to manipulate with opinion of society, and they tried to use the whole situation with war, which is going on in Ukraine, just to earn more votes uh, among Moldovan population. And communicational war is going on as well. So, and in this case, of course, you, for us, I think currently is the only chance for better future, for safe future, for future where people at least will be, will have this hope for equality of rights. It's really interesting to hear also about the 
implementation, of course, as we know, implementation is key. And that is something that, that the enlargement region does tend to, to struggle with is uh, implementation by the governments, by the authorities of the existing legislation. Um, I will now jump to how the EU accession process works in practice for LGBTI rights, because indeed, as Anastasia mentioned, this is you know, this is the important part. So you can adopt legislation to adhere to the EU requirements. But the question is, how is it working in practice? So I'm, I'm going to first move to Mariah Cornelison. Um, you've worked for many years as an MEP in the European Parliament, and you've always been very committed to the enlargement region and process. I was wondering if you could tell us from your experience in what ways the EU has been most effective in using the enlargement process to advance LGBTI rights. Uh, yeah, I was I was a member of the European Parliament between 2009 and 2014. And looking back on it, um, that was uh, a time of, of great uh, reform and a lot of things uh, happening. And we didn't realize it at the time because we thought um, it, it was going to improve further and further. But uh, we, we had a number of uh, things that, that really benefited LGBTI rights in the uh, Eastern region. Um, so there was uh, a commissioner... Uh, Stefan Fühler, who was responsible for enlargement and who is very supportive, um, who also insisted that in progress reports for the different countries, uh, LGBTI was strongly involved. We also had comparatively uh, progressive governments uh, in, in the EU uh, countries that had to decide on next steps in accession, uh, which we didn't think were progressive then, but compared to the governments now, they were. And I think what helped a lot was that at that time, countries could qualify for visa-free travel, which was also yeah, one of the steps in the whole accession process. And that was one of the best ones because uh, that had an immediate benefit for all the population. So not only the progressive part that want, wanted reforms in any case and that wanted fundamental rights, but it had benefits for the whole population uh, and immediately so. Uh, so I think, yeah, I was in uh, Moldova with Anastasia, I think it must have been around two th uh, 2013 when this was being debated and um, we had a chance to really say to the government, you need to adopt this new uh, anti-discrimination law and it needs to include sexual orientation. And uh, if you do not adopt this, then uh, no visa-free travel for your citizens. And I think actually we needed to convince three or four more liberals in the Moldovan parliament. So we got uh, MEPs uh, from the liberal group uh, to call these poor Moldovans um, the the president of the uh, of the ALDE liberal group in the in the European Parliament even came in and uh, called their colleagues and in the end this was adopted because uh, they didn't want to be the ones to say to their citizens no visa free travel uh, so that is one just one example of how this process can work unfortunately a lot of the process does not consist of immediate benefits for uh, citizens. So it's the um, uh, the outlook on accession in decades time. Um, so yeah, I think it would work a lot better if with next steps that also be next uh, benefits, because on the whole, the progressive parts of society uh, should be supported, but also the conservative side of society be brought along in this and should see uh, the benefits of it. Thank you very much also for explaining that, that accession is, is a long, long process and it is really interesting to, to try to think ahead to, to what could be 
you know, beneficial in, in 10 years' time, for example. W- would you say that the EU has also made some mistakes along the way in its approach to the accession process? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the, the accession process could be so much more effective if it was implemented as it should be. Uh, there's a number of countries that are always talking about uh, the accession process being strict but fair. But in practice, uh, it's neither. Um, so what should be happening is that the European Commission comes up with a list of criteria among which uh, uh, respect for fundamental rights and implementation of these uh, rules. And then a next step in the accession process can be taken once these criteria are complied with. So that yeah, sounds good and strict, but fair. Uh, what happens in practice, of course, is that the since the, the Council of Ministers have to decide about this uh, unanimously, it is very much about what voters in EU countries think. So, for an example, my uh, my own country, the Netherlands, they have held back Albania for at least two years in their process. And why? Uh, not so much uh, because uh, Albania didn't comply with criteria. And I mean, there's a lot to be done still in Albania, but they were ready to open negotiations. The problem was that there was this uh, notices in the in the Dutch newspapers about some Albanian organized crime. So public opinion. Uh, was in the Netherlands was against uh, Albania and so uh, to um, to cater to Dutch voters uh, Albania had to wait uh, which isn't strict and it isn't fair at all so politics uh, and also geopolitics uh, creeping into this uh, accession process is really something that uh, that hinders it. And you see it as well with, um, for instance, Serbia. In the past, Serbia has uh, sort of made problems with Kosovo itself and then gets rewarded for solving the problem that they caused and takes a, takes a next step. Yeah, and now there's... Uh, there's, of course, the, the geopolitical uh, new reality with the war in Ukraine, uh, Serbia not taking sides as clearly as we'd want them to do, to do. And you see that the EU is sort of trying to tread around them, uh, not being very firm about fundamental rights because they want to, um, to appease uh, Serbia so that they don't go over to the Russian side uh, completely. So, yeah, it should be strict, strict and fair. And in that case, it would work out best for LGBTI persons. Anastasia, I think you, you had your hand up. Would you like to come in? Yeah, I just wanted to add that definitely it should be strict because when law on ensuring equality, which is anti-discrimination legislation, when it was discussed in Moldova, you agreed to save sexual orientation as a ground of, of protection only in one chapter regarding discrimination at working place and labor. But in the very beginning, we discussed that for us, it would be really important to have sexual orientation and gender identity as grounds of protection in the first chapter of law, where actually the whole aim of law is explained. And many years later, so the law was adopted in 2012, so 10 years later now, we have to discuss this law again, and our government should review this law and to add sexual orientation everywhere, not just at uh, one chapter, which is about discrimination at working place, because of course, LGBT people face discrimination in very different areas of their lives. And it hasn't been done in the beginning. And now we have to do this 10 years later, which is, of course, if you were strict enough 10 years back, we didn't have these problems now.
but I really hope this legislation will be uh, reviewed and improved. Yeah, I so hope that the legislation will be improved. But just to add that one of the problems, of course, is that uh, the EU itself uh, hasn't forbidden uh, discrimination on sexual orientation or gender identity outside of the labour market. Uh, A directive to organise this was voted in the European Parliament in April of 2009, and it is still stuck now in the Council. Uh, Whereas in 2009, it could have definitely passed if some countries, and I'm also naming the Netherlands and Germany, uh, had worked for it to be passed. But now, of course, uh, with uh, the current governments in the EU, it would never pass anymore. Uh, So uh, a chance was missed there by the EU to really protect people uh, well. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll always be so sorry that that chance was missed then. Yeah, especially, you know, the chances missed for people in the EU and you can really see how it impacts beyond the EU through the enlargement process and through the the other processes that the EU has for working with its uh, neighborhood region. I'm I'm actually going to move now to to Danielle. So Danielle, you're a long-standing LGBTI rights activist in the region and you've seen the enlargement process affecting your work over many many years. How has this process um, been useful for your activism? So it was actually very useful in terms of legal changes, improvement of the legal framework on the rights that we are having uh, on paper, but also in some way it is followed by the practice. So we saw in many countries uh, negotiating to join the EU or countries uh, getting ready to start negotiation process. Together with that, improvements or discussion or concrete steps are made on that road in terms of our human rights. I believe that one of the best examples is Montenegro because uh, Montenegro quite well used this opportunity of the EU integration process in order to improve the legal framework. If we take a look at the rainbow map, we see that Montenegro is basically at the top of the list together with some other countries in terms of uh, legal framework, laws, policies, everything what we have on paper, even the same-sex union law. Uh, But if we start talking about what is going on in the real life, uh, it is not followed. So we do not have uh, the same change in the real life. What I want to say, it is good that countries and activists are using the EU integration process. Of course, it is uh, uh, one amazing boost to improvement, to start discussions, to forcing the governments to start changing approach regarding the human rights of LGBTI persons, but not only regards our rights, uh, regarding the human rights overall and the rights of uh, many different groups. But what I would like to see more is especially from the EU, uh, I would like to see more pressure on support from the governments, from the stakeholders, from the societies to better understand the importance of this process. And I would also like to see different messages coming because as at one hand, it is really good, as I said, and it is amazing opportunity for improvement of the legal framework. On the other hand, we saw in many countries that our opposition is basically using that against us, saying that our human rights and the discussion regarding our human rights are something that EU wanted. That is, you know, something like coming from 
external uh, uh, country or countries as a, some kind of a condition. So countries must do something uh, because of the EU, not because of the citizens of these countries. So uh, maybe we should all think about in a, in a, in a different way uh, uh, regarding the, how we communicate this. And I believe that different kind of messages coming from the EU, it's simple, simple words, simple sentences, mentioning and reminding everyone that this process is something that is done because of the people from specific countries, not because of the EU, not because of the EU integration, uh, would be, I believe, much uh, helpful for, for the future activism and the future change, because we need legal changes. That is something that we need for sure. We need a legal framework to be improved, but we need in order to be able to exercise all of these rights that we uh, are having on paper in everyday life. We need changes of hearts and minds that should follow. And that change is not going fast as a change of the legal framework. So yes, EU integration process is extremely important, but also it should be followed by the, a lot of campaigning and the positive messages regarding the everyday life of the people, how they affect my life, how that affect our lives of our community members, but also how that will change society overall, everyday life of every people in, in one society in a better way. It's a, it's a really good point as well, especially in the context of Montenegro, where the approval rating for the EU is actually very high. So if the EU were to get a better handle on its messaging on these topics, and, and it would be a winning strategy. I would like to also to mention now, when we are talking about this topic, um, about something that um, we are noticing, especially in the Western Balkans here, that EU is getting, I would say, a little bit lost in the meantime, because of all of the problems that EU have inside, because of the uh, overall situation that we are having, a different political situation, and now war in Ukraine, and the COVID crisis before that. So um, I believe that EU should, by itself, reconsider its activities. I know it's not easy. It's not easy in this political uh, and uh, uh, other circumstances in which the whole world is at the moment. But I'm quite afraid that if this situation is continued in the future, that it might happen that all of the success that is made, especially in the Western Balkans, you know, can go backward. Because we have anti-gender movement on the rise, anti-abortion movement on the rise, anti-human rights movement on the rise. The uh, church influence also in the Western Balkans is extremely high. Through the church, the Russian influence. And um, I'm really concerned and I need that EU regards the Western Balkans should reconsider its approach and get more involved in a way to protect what is achieved and to find a way to ensure that the change in a bet better direction should be continued. Uh, we have some kind of uh, pose on the interventions, I would say. Yeah, indeed, it's a really, really difficult period uh, in the non-EU Western Balkans at the moment, and the EU definitely needs to uh, recognize uh, the issues, especially that human rights and LGBTI people are facing. Um, Katrin wanted to, to jump in, so I give the floor to Katrin. Yeah, thank you very much. I just thought it, it was a really nice moment in the conversation to maybe come in and tell a little bit about how we as ILGA Europe see the enlargement process, but also what we feel we can do and needs to be done. Because I think 
what came through really clearly and, and thanks a lot were really the hopes that are put in that process and rightly so because I think there is it's very clear that through EU treaties through EU legislation you know with all the limitations it has with the limitations out of anti-discrimination outside the labor market Mariah mentioned but also the limitations let's be very honest when it comes to gender identity gender expression and sex characteristics um, where still needs to be a lot needs to be done um, also within the EU. But there is a, a certain standard that, you know, members who want to join the EU need to adhere to. And there is a political momentum of those countries actually welcoming the accession process in that sense, you know, signaling that they want to move. And, and we really need to make sure how we use that leverage very intelligently. Um, I myself, I joined to, uh, in 2014, Ilga Europe, so I had the privilege to see a lot of the work being done around the Western Balkans that, that also Danielle talked a little bit about. But I know that long before there were there was works with Polish activists, Hungarians, Bulgaria, Romania, to actually prepare mm. them when they were joining the, the EU on kind of how to make best use. And I, and I just want to mention that and go back a little bit in time to also name one risk, and that is, it's been mentioned a lot how already in the uh, in the accession process we need to look at implementation as well, because it's a real windows of opportunity. And what we've seen, for example, with the countries I mentioned, is that that window of opportunity and that leverage of the EU actually closes down again once those countries have joined. So once they've ticked the boxes of, for example, adopting hate crime legislation, including sexual orientation, following up on implementation when they're already members of the EU has become much more difficult. So actually over the last 10 years, I would say we've often seen a stronger push on countries in the Western Balkans then was there a push from the EU on, for example, Romania and Bulgaria, who had the right legislation in place, but actually didn't implement that legislation properly. Um, so there's a real, a real question of how we're using that. You know, it's working with the movement. Um, so really working with organizations in the countries, bringing them together on the priorities, um, often, you know, helping translate it into EU language. But I think we've also become quite creative and quite successful in bringing topics that are not necessarily strictly EU competence into the accession process. So we've seen in the enlargement reports, for example, for certain countries in the Western Balkans, um, how do you acknowledge that partnership legislation and legal gender recognition are important parts of the deal as well. And so, you know, we can work with organizations on the ground to really making these messages come through. Another really important part is linking up to what Danielle just said is, is really for everyone also here in Brussels, in the EU institutions, to understand the context they're actually working in. So for us to actually bring activists to the enlargement report meetings, to bring them directly in conversations with, with MEPs, with people in the European Commission, um, in the External Action Service, for them to understand what are also the traps in how they talk about the accession process? How are we getting the messaging right, as Danielle um, has been mentioning, has been really extremely important. And the last thing I want to say before before giving the floor back to Belinda, sorry, is, is a bit coming back to what Mariah also said on the, on the more politics behind it all. I think we all need to be extremely cautious of how 
easy it is to lose the credibility of the EU accession process. Um, and that's especially a warning, I think, to member states and a warning to the European Commission. Um, we've seen it when, as Maria said, um, accession was halted for North Macedonia and Albania with activists in both countries really ringing alarm bells and together with us um, alerting institutions on, on what that can mean, what backlash is actually awaiting them. But we've also seen it, for example, in Turkey that, you know, if you drag out that process, the EU is losing the credibility. Um, if you're not speaking out strongly on, on what actually accession criteria are, that leverage is actually getting smaller. So it's a it's a big task for us, together with all the organizations in the countries, to really work on kind of keeping that up and ensuring that EU institutions, member states actually know what's at stake and what can be done, but also that it needs to be done in a certain order and relatively smooth. So that's where we're going to leave the discussion for this part. And in part two of this episode, we'll be talking about how ILGA Europe works with the accession process and discussing the EU's role in what happened at Europride in Belgrade this September. Stay tuned. You have been listening to The Frontline, ILGA Europe's LGBTI activism podcast. To find out more about our guests and the organizations they represent, visit the links in our episode description and please subscribe, like, comment or share wherever you listen to your podcasts. The more we hear from you, the more activists will gain from our work at ILGA Europe to build a strong and resilient movement for positive change in LGBTI people's lives. Tune in next time when we'll be traveling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia. Bye for now.